0: Hi, it's Kathy. Today, I'm sharing a recent conversation from Rock the Boat. It's a podcast that delves deeper into today's Asian American experiences by interviewing guests who challenge the status quo. And in this episode, Rock the Boat's host, Lucia Lu, talks with New York State Assemblywoman Yulene Yeo. When I listened to this, I was just so impressed with the tenacity and integrity of Eulene, who is the only Asian American woman in the New York State Legislature and that's a position she was elected to in 2016. Yulene's district also includes Manhattan Chinatown. If you remember Patrick Mock, the Chinatown bakery manager from one of our stories on Self-Evident, Yulene was one of the first people to help him bring in donations and volunteers to serve a free hot lunch to hundreds of New Yorkers every day. What I loved about Yulene's path to representation is that she thought she wanted to be a lawyer at first, and her parents approved of that, but as Yulene says in this interview, she realized that she didn't just want to defend the law as it existed. She wanted to write that law. I hope you find her story as inspiring as I did. Here's Rock the Boat with the interview.
1: I felt like it was so significant and important that if I knew how to navigate a system then I can help to make sure that everybody else in the community could be able to navigate that system. And so I applied for the legislative internship, and I got it. And that was my first experience seeing that actually there is no big secret to accessing government. It's just that there's a lot of people in power who want to keep that knowledge from you.
2: You're listening to Rock the Boat, a purpose-driven podcast highlighting Asians who challenge the status quo. Our mission is to elevate the voices of Asians, showcase the diverse careers of Asians around the world, and discuss important topics affecting our community, such as mental health and civic engagement. I'm your host, Lucia Liu. Welcome to episode two of season five of Rock the Boat. If you missed the last episode, no worries. Just know that for season five, we're focusing on highlighting Asian Americans who are challenging the status quo in politics, public health, civic engagement, and advocacy. Asian Americans are oftentimes the margin of victory in many states, not just for the presidential election, but also for the Senate and Congress and for assembly people. In the last episode, Senator Tammy Duckworth shared the importance of having Asian representation in the government. For this episode, I'm actually speaking with a New York elected official, Assemblymember Yulin Yeo. Yulin is the first and only Asian American woman to represent District 65 of New York. District 65 includes iconic New York landmarks such as Wall Street, the Statue of Liberty, and surprisingly, also Chinatown. Yulin started her career as an aide to members of the Washington State Legislature and quickly realized that the issue she most wanted to tackle was poverty. She moved to New York to pursue a master's in public administration, and then one chance meeting with Assemblymember Ron Kim landed her a role as his chief of staff in 2012. After working with Ron, the opportunity came up for Yulin to run for an open Assemblymember position and she won in a landslide during the primary election. In this episode, Yulene shares her journey in becoming an elected official and how her representation in Albany has brought more resources to her community. Here's Yulene.
1: My name is Yulene New. I'm actually the assembly member representing Lower Manhattan, which actually encompasses some very famous things, the Statue of Liberty, Wall Street, the Financial District, Battery Park City. South Street Seaport, and of course, my favorite, which is like the Lower East Side Chinatown area, which I think everybody thinks of as New York. So, yeah, I'm I'm very proud of my district.
2: Yeah, well, I'm very proud of your district too because I live there. Yay, constituents. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we always like to start off the podcast with going back in time and understanding who our guests are when they're little. So what was little Euline like? My parents brought me to the States when I was only six months old. My mom and
1: dad were actually really amazing and brave, and they were in their late 20s, and they decided to immigrate to the United States with $1,000 in their pockets and six suitcases because the baby could have two, you know, (laughs) on the flight. My dad decided that he was going to go to Moscow, Idaho, The engineering school at the University of Idaho in Moscow was willing to actually give my dad a package that would be able to bring over his young family. So he was able to get a, a dormitory for families that would allow him to be uh, able to keep our family together. And so that's the decision that he made. And I'm really glad that I wasn't just like left behind somewhere, but I was only six months old when we came. And then we moved around a lot, typical Asian immigrant family. It was really in pursuit of my father's education. You know, my mom was a nurse and so she was amazing and just kind of picked up and started up wherever my dad needed her to. And that's like the strength of this amazing woman that I call mom.
2: Yeah. I see so many parallels between my journey and your journey. My dad is the same. He got a scholarship at the University of Toledo, Ohio. Similar to you, my family and I have moved around to seven different states. And so I was looking at your bio and I noticed that you lived in Idaho and Texas and Oregon and all these different states where there are very few Asians in those states. What was that kind of like for you?
1: When we moved to Oregon, I still remember just having a small Asian American community around us because we were in a small town called Beaverton, Oregon. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of actually Asian Americans there. But you know, like within school, I was obviously the only Asian kid. And I just was, you know, very lonely. I got bullied a lot in school. And when I was in in elementary school in Texas, I still remember this girl. She used to bully me a lot. Like she would pull me into the coat closet and have all of my other classmates take turns spitting on me. There was this time when she like threw my lunchbox in the boys' bathroom and I was too afraid to go to the bathroom in there. But she set the trash can on fire, locked me in, and and then the sprinklers went off. Oh my gosh. But that was a whole other thing. I didn't catch on fire. But she like ran out locked the door, and I was so afraid um, that I actually peed myself in a bathroom. Like, these kinds of things that were going on in Texas all the time, and totally acceptable, and I still remember how it was totally okay for somebody to just want to beat me up because I was Asian. I actually ran home to my mom, and I was crying and telling her I had no friends, and she was so sad for me and I still remember the look on her face because I just kept on saying like why I was blaming her I was like why did you have to make me Chinese like why did you Mm. make me Asian and Mm -hmm. my mom still remembers that day very distinctly because I was so angry at her the way that like now I can talk about it a lot easier but I just still remember like her shock and her hurt and like her inability to do anything to protect me right and she wanted to but there was nothing that, of course, you could do. And I still remember her answer was, you know, just study harder because, you know, everybody likes people with good grades.
2: <laughs> the <laughs> most Asian answer. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, at what point were you able to sort of embrace your Asian identity? When I was a kid, I, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that my parents were doing. And, like, right. I didn't understand, you know, why my
1: parents dad you know put a brick in the toilet or like you know I just was like wow like Chinese people must like do weird things you know but actually my dad was like an enviro you know and he was just like making a low flow toilet you know he was doing all kinds of stuff that was like interesting like they would garden and I was like oh my gosh like please stop gardening you poor you know like we're we're obviously poor but like don't look like that you know I I just remember being like very scared and ashamed all the time and then When I started to see how that was so wrong and where my internalizing all this stuff was, it really kind of broke. One of the things I remember the most was watching my mom study. And I remember crying a little bit because she studied and worked so hard all the time. She was a nurse for most of my life. She was just Nurse, a nurse all the time and she, yeah. the hospital. she worked night shifts and she was also studying because I like all of her certificates and everything had to be redone she was a very experienced and very qualified nurse in Taiwan like she had to recertify everything and there right. were these different tests and she started working towards her master's to be able to do administration and things like that and so I still remember she was pregnant with my brother and and she was studying, and then she was going to work and doing all these things. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, like,
2: my mom is amazing. Were there particular things that your parents wanted you and your siblings to be growing up? Not this. My dad still I was...
1: love how frank you are about that. <laughs> my dad still is asking me, like, when are you get a real job? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, he, my parents, like, their heart hurts so bad when, you know, they see me, like, working so hard for – so little and like their their whole thing is now Now they understand like a lot about why it's so important to have representation and my mom actually yeah. something very significant to me about voting and how you know voting is what makes us American and I was like yeah it really is, it really is mom and she's like I didn't know that I didn't think about it it, it was incredible that it was something that she thought about um, was there something that triggered that thought it was me running for office and her you know trying to get out the vote for me she never thought about how important it was to have representation. She never thought about it. Like, she knew mm. it, you know, intellectually, yes. She knew it, understood it. But she didn't, like, deeply think about it. And it wasn't until I was running for office and she saw, like, how... Because, like, she knows me. And, like, you know, when, you're, when your mom, like, knows you better than... Who knows you better than anyone and knows your heart better than anyone is, like telling other folks about you, you know, like she's constantly, she made me cry so much just because of the fact that she was telling people about
2: things that she never even talked to me about. So prior to you running for office, Mm -hmm. and prior to you getting into government and politics, what did your parents want you to be?
1: So I think I was very clear about what I wanted to be. And my parents were very good with it. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And, of course, my parents were like, that's fine. And so when I decided on a different path, my mom was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was no, like, no, it's not too late for law school. Uh, I, I was a certified nursing assistant when I was a kid, and my my mom would always be like, you know, you should go to medical school, and like I had thought about it. It was honestly because of them that I I, I did start doing public service. It's 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 a very interesting thing because they kind of created it and and spawned it in me.
2: In what ways did they spawn it in you?
1: So like I said, like my dad's an enviro, my mom is a nurse. When I was a little kid, I got to see like through my parents' example what people could do for one another and my dad being an environmentalist <laughs> wasn't going to like get him to the rooms that he needed to be in so he studied material science engineering and chemistry so that people like these chem- chemicals are dangerous or these materials are dangerous and
2: yeah and, and do things that way Can so your parents are both very like civically minded they wouldn't say so but they are <laughs> <laughs> you noticed it in them at what point were you kind of like well you know maybe law school's not for me and i'd much rather be in public policy or be a public servant.
1: I guess I have to go back to when I felt like law school was for me. So like yeah, when I was seven yeah. years old, my mom was in a car accident. She was rear-ended from behind. And I just like remember like watching it as it happened. And this guy, he was speeding in a school zone and rear-ended her. And, and yes, yeah, she was still deemed partially negligent because her English wasn't as good as his. And I just remember thinking, Like, that's such crap, you know? And these little injustices just kind of add up and add up and add up and add up. And you just, like, see, like, you know, like, your dad, who's, like, this brilliant guy, a genius, you know, and has a PhD and does all this stuff. And then, like, somebody who has, like, better English, has a master's, like, is literally promoted above him. You know, like, just, like, little things. Little things that, like, trigger it. You know, people who are hateful. Things that are said to your parents. Things that are said to you. Like, the bullying in school. Like, all of it just adds up. Right? And then you start to think, like, well how am I supposed to make that change? You know, how am I supposed to like, help to speak up for folks, I felt like it was so significant and important, that if I knew how to navigate a system, because I have the opportunity to do that, then I can help to make sure that everybody else in the community could be able to navigate that system. And so I was very convinced that I needed to see how government worked. And so Mm -hmm. when I was in high school, I looked up, out to get a, uh, a legislative internship and I applied to Evergreen State College because that was where the capital was and also had a higher percentage of getting you into a legislative internship and so I applied for the legislative internship and I got it and that was my first experience seeing that actually there is no big secret to accessing government it's just that there's a lot of people in power who want to keep that knowledge from you I needed to like break that myth for everyone I needed to show people that and I just I felt like It was so crucial and critical to make sure that I became obsolete and not needed.
2: Did you study government in college? I studied political science and social policy. How did you decide not to go to law school and decide instead to be an aide at the Washington State Legislature?
1: A lot of it was monetary, but the other part of it was just that the policy was just so important. I realized that I didn't want to just defend the law as it existed, but the law is messed up. The, these systems are, are not broken. They're designed a certain way to hurt certain mm-hmm. people in certain communities. And so yep. I didn't want to just like defend that law. I wanted to write the law. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I decided to do. So I worked for different advocacy groups. I worked for different legislators and I helped to write the law.
2: Julian, what was that experience like working for the Washington State Legislature and how would you sort of describe that experience? I think that the
1: the best thing about that experience was just having the ability to see everything that works from a bird's eye view and really kind of see like how legislation was made, you know, we've all seen schoolhouse rock like when a bill becomes a mm-hmm. law, but I got to see it like in real time and how it was done and how certain things happened and who were these triggers or levers and how things were lobbied and how things were changed and how legislation was divided into different committees and like i got to touch everything and Mm. and i think like it also was something that was a growing experience for me just personally i remember just being unabashed and just asking to stay longer asking to help out with another thing being a page like delivering notes back and forth from legislator to legislator just so i could see the floor action myself and be there in person. And I just remember thinking, this is all part of just understanding how the system works. And I got to really see how, my own knowledge of how the system works while I was working within it. And then I got to see what my that knowledge like transmitted to when I regulated different industries, like the payday lending industry and the check cashing industry and like, insurance companies. Like When I started working for a group called the Statewide Poverty Action Network as their Um, public policy person, they're lobbyists. And I realized this is what it's about. This is where it's important. Having that knowledge of how the system works is how to be able to give a voice to so many people who didn't have one before.
2: Yeah. And how did you end up working for Assemblymember Ron Kim?
1: So it's funny, Ron was actually an alumni of um, the same grad program that I was just graduating from. My friend Hayo Kim was speaking. I went to go and meet up with her. And that's when I met another alumni from the program named Ron Kim. And he was just like, oh, I didn't know that you had so much legislative experience. And I didn't know that this was your background. Can we talk? And I was like, sure. And he was telling me <laughs> about how he was going to run for office, and then we just kind of hit it off as people. I didn't know then what I know now, which is that he was going to be running for a seat that would make him the only Asian American in the entire New York State Legislature. And I I was shocked to learn that, that Asian Americans only held one seat ever in the New York State mm. Legislature, and that there was only three people that came beforehand that were Asian American in the legislature. And so it became a fight for representation. And he was going to be the first Korean American ever to be elected to any state office or any office actually in the entire New York state.
2: You mentioned this a lot. Representation is so important. Mm -hmm. Can you tell any sort of specific examples or stories around why representation is so important in legislation?
1: Sure. Let's talk about just like some basics, right? There was never a mention of Asian Americans in our entire New York state budget until I was elected. I brought it up. And every community gets different amounts of money from the state budget for different things that they need in their districts. And Asian Americans have never gotten anything. And so this is a huge, crucial thing, right? And we need representation in order to be able to get the services and the benefits that we deserve. One of the biggest things I want to push is uh, obviously language access and Mm -hmm. data disaggregation. We are not one monolithic group. And when we are getting services or when we are needing services, we have to know who we're serving. And I think that it's really important to remember that in New York City, actually, Asian Americans one in four Asian Americans is actually living in poverty. We have the highest racial and ethnic groups living in poverty in New York City. Right. I think that that is hidden a lot of times by this model minority myth. And it's also something that is very hard to navigate without the language access that we desperately need. Just in my district alone, we have four major dialects of Chinese. We need all of those dialects to be heard and used and represented in order to make sure that people actually get the things they need to be able to get the services that they need.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And we need to never forget about how that is a huge barrier for so many of our folks here in New York.
2: Well said. So after working for Ron Kim, or I guess like while working for Ron Kim, you were sort of tapped for an assembly member seat when there was a special election for District 65, which encompass Chinatown. What was kind of running through your mind as people encouraged you to run for that seat?
1: I mean, it's really, really true what they say about like the difference between women and men and people of color and white people about like whether or not they think that they're ready for office or whether or not they think that they should run for office. The first person to ask me to run and then many people asked me to run after, but it was Daniel Squadron, the senator at the time. and And then Ron, obviously, you know, he played a big role in convincing me to run because he was just like, do you think that anybody else can do this? better than you because he's like because I don't he always told me and I don't think it's true but I think that you know he's an amazing legislator but he just said to me he's like you would make a much better legislator than me without you I wouldn't be a good legislator (laughs) like just that was just so sweet but like at the same time like I I really respect his opinion and I really admire him and so I think that there's a lot of things that kind of help me to make that decision but I never once wanted to be a legislator and I never wanted to be an elected official and you know I honestly, like there's parts of me that still feel those anxieties and, you know, the voice. It's it's like very loud. It sounds like my mom. And it always tells me, well, you know, there's
2: this thing and there's that thing. As a woman in a male-dominated field, have you ever felt out of water? And I guess like, is there advice that you could tell other women who are looking to hold leadership roles and how to hold their own?
1: I think that it is hard. There are moments where I've been startled at other people's behavior or just hurt by folks' lack of consideration. And just there's things that are just like awful to see and awful to hear. When I was a kid, I didn't think that women could be elected. And I didn't think that because I had never seen one. And when I was in fifth grade, I actually got to meet Ann Richards, who was the governor of Texas. And she was the first woman governor of Texas. And she was one of the only women to ever become governor of any state. And, and it was like this whole thing shattered in my brain. And like, I just was floored by her authenticity, her laughter, like just her being relatable to small children. And like, Mm -hmm. it was awesome. I didn't even realize I had that in my own head that that internalized oppression that it it broke in that moment. And, and I'm seeing that every single day, as we are having more and more women electeds, I never thought that we would pass like, gender in my lifetime, because we waited for so long. Mm -hmm. And women's reproductive health rights, and the Child Victims Act, Like, these like huge pieces of legislation that have been in wait for so long and people have been fighting and fighting and fighting over them. And then having more women in in that room made the difference.
2: Now, I want to take some time to emphasize the importance of what Yulene had just said about how having women in the room makes a difference in passing important legislation, legislation like the New York Child Victims Act. Basically, before the bill was passed, survivors of child sexual abuse had 1 to 5 years to bring a civil lawsuit against their abuser. The 1 to 5 year time limit started after the victim turned 18. For a long time, it's been recognized that it's actually very difficult for survivors of child sexual abuse to come forward or even come to terms with the trauma until many many years later. So as a result, many survivors couldn't pursue a claim for damages because one to five year time period expired by the time that they were ready. What the new bill proposed was to extend the time period in which somebody could report by five years. This means that survivors can press charges until they're 28 years old. Last year, as the bill was being voted on, Euline decided to tell the world her story. It was a very interesting
1: moment for me on the legislative floor because I wanted to let folks know that people in the room were affected by their vote. My mom was always just like, yeah, you know, don't rock the boat. Don't, like, ripple the water. And I still remember her saying that when I brought up the Child Victims Act, but I still remember when I was sexually assaulted by my teacher beginning of high school and I was like 13 or 14 years old or something like that and just like just like having to deal with adults and how they thought and how different it was for how I felt and then for my parents to just say you know well maybe you should just drop the class don't rock the boat and I mean I just I think my parents thought that way a lot I didn't have the tools to even think that way I didn't even right. think like, wow, like my, my mom and dad definitely didn't want me to be affected by it negatively. But so that for them, it was just like, let's keep everything normal as normal as possible, you know, right. and pretend it didn't happen. And for me, it was just like, pretending it didn't happen hurt me more. And I didn't even understand it. I just silenced myself to make it so that they were happier. And then I was yeah. trying to erase my own existence, you know. And so I think yeah. like that was, you know, when I realized that, I can't not rock the boat. I think that it's really important that we always speak up when we have to and call out bad behavior when we have to.
2: Yulene's testimony, along with testimonies of three other lawmakers, resulted in a unanimous vote to pass the Child Victims Act in February of 2019. Now that you've been in the seat for four years. What sort of issues are you seeing in your district and and the fact that 40% of the district is Asian because it encompasses Chinatown and especially now with COVID and a lot of anti-Asian sentiment?
1: Yeah. So that's one of the biggest things, obviously. My district was hit hardest, not because of the virus, but we were hit hardest by racism and xenophobia. People were getting beat up when they wore a mask. People were getting beat up when they didn't wear a mask. People were getting set on fire or made fun of. And like, I even got calls, you know, in my office saying that I ate bats. You know, just like, this is just like something that was really hurtful. And you started to see our small businesses be affected by the lack of foot traffic and, you know, the Facebook messages saying not to go to Chinatown because we're dirty and our food is Dirty and unclean, and I think that you know these, this kind of anti-Asian sentiment's not, it's not new. It's just right. It's uh, it's just more prevalent and well, pronounced now. Right, and yeah. I think that you know that was one of the biggest issues we saw, and like the domino effect of it is more dire in our community than in all the other communities now that are experiencing a difficulty in reopening a difficulty for the small businesses to get out seating, and all those things like it's amplified here because our runway is almost six months shorter than everybody else's i just think that it's still hard for folks to to kind of get the courage and the confidence that they need to make it through this because it's hard
2: i can imagine those are sort of the issues that are front and center Are there any issues that get missed, not talked about in terms of race or like including Asian voters?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, some of the Obvious ones, I mean, even when we're talking about the census, right, like we need to talk about that. Like the fact of the matter is uh, Chinatown has been one of the only folks left without like Wi-Fi and Internet. We're not on the grid like for a lot of access and just all of these things like that means that a lot of folks are not counted.
2: I'm sure there's also fear, especially yeah. amongst the Chinatown community or from like the immigrant community
1: yeah.
2: that this might impact their ability to stay in the U.S., especially yeah. if they're undocumented. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've talked to them about it. And I think that there's we've dispelled some of it. But at the same time, there is going to be irrational fears that are, well, I'm not irrational right now, I guess, but um, yeah. um, about the census. And then also, I think that we've obviously been just trying to make folks understand some of the difficulties in outreach that they might be facing if they are census workers, et cetera, and don't have language access or language capabilities.
2: Totally. With, I guess, just such a huge wage gap and such a diverse group of people living in lower Manhattan from laborers and wage workers to financiers, how are you balancing the types of resources and the types of things that these various communities need, especially during this time? And or if that's even possible, like, I don't really know, right?
1: I Actually, I'm hearing more similarities than differences, especially now. Some really, really successful small business owners and some larger business owners are all suffering from not being able to pay commercial rent. And, uh, you know, there's like folks who are seeing like these like institutions in our district just packing up and not being able to reopen are just amazing places that have like survived the Great Depression and Hurricane Sandy and 9-11 and all of it, when yet they couldn't survive this because our government hasn't been helping the way that it needed to, to make sure that there's a cushion for everyone. And I think the biggest thing that we've been hearing is obviously to tax the rich and to make sure that people are paying their fair share. This has been a budget justice issue that has kind of made it even more visible that I mean, when you're seeing, like, multimillionaires and billionaires making more and more money while everybody else can't even make ends meet anymore, it's when you start to see, like, how huge the income inequality is here. And you're also seeing it throughout New York and the entire United States. It's actually just by design. It's no longer just because, like, oh, somebody is rich because they earned it. I want to take a
2: step back from just New York and Manhattan, but to the U.S. right now, there's so many different political issues in the U.S. right now, obviously, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with U.S.-China trade tensions, with the elections coming up. What are some of the issues and the things that Asian-Americans should keep top of mind
1: I think representation is so important. What we should keep at top of mind is the fact that we need to make sure to put our voice out there, to vote, to participate, and in order to make sure that we have good representation and to make sure that we have voices for our communities. Because right now, like I said, we didn't even have Asian Americans included in our budget until I was elected.
2: I can imagine that being the case in so many other places. The fact that 40% of your district is represented by Asians, yet... Asians don't even have a say.
1: Yeah, the representation is just you know, so.
2: <laughs> well, so then how do we activate Asian Americans as a force for advocacy, activism? Like how do we enable them to be more civically engaged? I think part of it
1: is education of like how the legislature works and how policy works and how bills work. And what's the basic difference between what city, state and federal and just like some of these things that make it so that it's clear where to direct their attentions for particular issues. And I think that Asian-Americans have different issues throughout as well. Like I said, we're not one monolithic group.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you if you have any stories to share, whether good or bad, as an assembly member. Throughout
1: this pandemic, I have seen the unwillingness for our own government to step up, but I have seen a willingness for our neighbors to step up for one another that I have never seen before. My friend Patrick, who I helped to set up a lunch program with, we were giving out food to folks in uh, Section 8, public housing, etc. We were able to help to stop the food scarcity issue and the struggle for, you know, financial help like in a lot of different ways to help to meet up with some of the needs that were going on and bridge a little bit of the gap for some people and then just make sure that there's a warm meal for some other folks who just need one. I've been able to get like from my own family and my own friends and like from folks who just care. We were able to give out over a quarter of a million masks. Just like having people step up and be willing to help has been incredible and I only say that that in itself is one of the most inspiring things throughout this entire time and one of the reasons why I keep fighting every day.
2: What advice would you give to other Asians out there who might want to run for office?
1: I think that seeing is believing so you know even if you're hesitating at all just remember that somebody's going to see it and they'll believe it and then they'll run too i think it's so important that people are willing to take that risk and chance it's hard and i know it but but i think that we need really amazing leaders especially right now when we are trying to recover as a state as a city as a country and we need your help so please step up and i'm going to tell people something that my mentor told me my mentor was Uncle Bob Santos um, from Seattle, Washington, huge was civil rights leader. And he told me that you don't need a title, you don't need an office, you don't even need a desk or a pad of paper or even a pen. You can lead from wherever you're at. And I think that right now is the time for us to do that.
2: I love that, I love that. Yuli. how do you intend to wreck the boat? Uh, breathing,
1: existing, you know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was New York assembly member Nu. Yulin works hard every day for her district. She is the only Asian-American woman in the New York state legislature, a state where Asian-Americans are the fastest growing racial and ethnic group. Yulin's story shows how truly important it is for Asian-Americans to have a seat at the table in government. She's able to lobby for resources and budgets for issues that disproportionately affect the Asian-American community. Furthermore, she's paving a path for other Asian Americans to follow in her footsteps. Maybe one day, someone who has seen her work while growing up will be inspired to run and serve their community as well. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating if you're listening on iTunes and definitely tell your friends about it. You can follow us on Instagram at rocktheboatnyc and subscribe to our mailing list for inside news. Thanks for tuning in and until next time.